Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. Rank Squad and welcome to Ranks FC. It's your favourite football podcast back for another week. My name is Jack Collins and I will be your host today. And joining me is the Rank God back from Paris, Mr. Sam Tai. Hello, my friends. How are, how are you? Not too bad, mate. How are you? How was your trip? I had a really nice trip. Paris is beautiful. It really is. It's a good autumn trip. I recommend it. As long as it's not raining, it's so much better at night when it lights up. Because you know what? The Eiffel Tower during the day... Just like it looks like a big rusty metal structure, but put some pretty lights on it, and you're into you're onto a winner. I'm afraid. Yeah, it's an easy sell that, and it's, it's it is to be fair more dark in autumn than it is in summer. So yeah, you get more nighttime to uh, Paris to is actually autumn. dark year round. I don't know if you know. <laughs> we did discuss this once upon a time, but I'm sure we'll get on to Paris later in this show. And of course, our transfer guru, Mr. Dean Jones. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. How are you doing? No such expeditions for you? No, no Paris for me this week. No, no. We let Sam go on his own. It would have been weird if I tagged along with him and Rachel. So that they, went, they went alone for the anniversary, <laughs> I think. So that would have been <laughs> odd. Samily in Paris. Um, yeah. In, in very much so. Right. Well, Sam, while you've been away, there's been some international football. There's been lots going on, actually. And I think it's probably a good place to start with things we love. And Dean, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so obviously, yeah, the whole episode is going to be about international football. But um, my thing I love is not about international football. It's actually, um, well, it's about a TV show, to be honest with you. Um, next, well, well, just over a week away is the launch of the next All or Nothing. And this time, it's Juventus. And I am really, really looking forward to this. I mean, I love this show anyway. Like, it's just amazing what you get to see. The characters, like getting to see some of the players' personality, learning that Deli Ali doesn't know how to brush his teeth, things like that. Like, there's just such <laughs> insight into these players. It's just mesmeric. Um, <laughs> but obviously, with Juve, this really wasn't supposed to happen how it happened. Like, PLO goes into the club. Like, you're expecting this, like, unbelievable season and what turns out is obviously Juve scrape into you know the Champions League spots on the last day of the season they get knocked out of the Champions League in the last 16 by Porto um the whole thing doesn't play out how you expect Pirlo gets sacked at the end of the season um spoilers (laughs) (laughs) this is it isn't it so we know what's happening but we want to see like what was it actually like leading into these games and I just want to see it I you know, I haven't been to um, Turin much at all. I think I've been to the stadium once, been to Turin once in my life. So I don't know, like, what their training ground's like. I don't know, like, what the whole base is like, what the what the whole atmosphere is like around the club. So I'm, I'm really interested in this. Like, with Man City and Tottenham, I knew a lot of what I'd be getting because, obviously, we cover football in England and we, we see this stuff. But for me, this one's going to be a little bit different. And I think it'll be, I think it'll be really nice. I think I'm looking forward to getting stuck into it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the All or Nothings have been really beautifully produced, haven't they? I think this is the thing. Oh, yeah. And there's there's always these questions about whether like it's a good thing for Amazon to be behind the scenes in a in a year. And there was all these questions about Tottenham. I know there's an Arsenal one coming next year. There's going to be plenty of questions over whether it's a good or a bad thing that people get to see this. But ultimately, they always provide incredible entertainment. And I imagine unless you are a direct fan of the club in question, there's almost no doubt that it's a, an interesting thing. There is a question yeah. as suppose if you are a fan of Juventus if you actually want to see what happened behind the scenes last year because it might be a little bit like oh not sure about any of this but um the rest of us are going to be here absolutely gagging for it so yeah can't wait well the Juve yeah. fans are probably wishing it had been any other of the years of the previous nine right <laughs> just won the league nine years in a row no documentary Let's make a documentary of the year they mess it up. Nice one. Well, they did make a documentary on Amazon about Juventus, and it's about two, three years old, but it's in Italian. It has subtitles on it, so you can watch that as well, and that is about them winning the league. And there is already, to be fair, history on Amazon about the way that Juventus... It might be on Netflix, actually. I think it might be on Netflix. Okay. Um, but it's, you know, there is a documentary there already. So there is good times. Now we get to see the bad times. And uh, look, behind the scenes at the bad times, it's excited. They did win a cup, didn't they? So it wasn't all doom and gloom. Uh, they got they got at least a piece of silverware out of this terrible, terrible season. So it really did go quite poorly. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they portray this stuff. Is it, do they portray it as success, a successful season? And yeah. PLO leaves and they're like, oh, thank you, mate. Thank you for stabilising the ship while we go through a difficult year. Like, we only wanted you for one year, though. Good luck with your career. We'll see you again at some point. Yeah, I, I think so. It, it's intriguing. <laughs> there's, look, there's a, lot of good, um, there's a lot of good things at the moment getting released, isn't there? And, and that's important. If you're, uh, if you're on for uh, enjoying big videos and, and lots of things, on Copper 90 Stories at the moment, there's a, there's a Scottish documentary about where Ellie Mengem, who is the king of football documentaries follows around the Scottish national team well the Scottish fans around the Euros this summer I think the title of it is it's shite being Scottish um, but it's about this the story of you know maybe the most well I suppose long awaited uh, fan base waiting for a, a crack at an international tournament and it's absolutely brilliant so worth checking out on YouTube as well if you're at it Sam what's your thing you love well, as you know, having been away over the weekend, I didn't actually watch any of the international football. I did get uh, last half an hour or so of Italy's struggle against Northern Ireland, but we'll be talking about that a little bit later. So I'm going to wind it back to domestic football very briefly and talk about one of the major developments that took place over the course of last week. And it's courtesy actually of a message from one of our listeners, Sammy Watkins on Twitter, who has essentially begged us to talk about the pure narrative feel of Aston Villa's December. And I'm more than happy to oblige on this one, Sammy, but thank you for laying out the details. As If you didn't know, Stephen Gerrard has now taken the head coaching job at Aston Villa. He's replaced Dean Smith. It's been a very strange week or so for Villa fans. And, um, you know, he's going to have his feet under the table for the next couple of weeks. You know, get yourself prepared. You know, the rest of November is his time to really settle in. And he needs to take that quite seriously because December is going to be exhausting by the looks of the calendar. 1st of December, the very first day, Man City come to Villa Park and that signals the return of Jack Grealish, which will be an emotionally difficult time for a lot of those fans. And for Jack, you imagine. And for Jack Grealish too. I think he'll get a lot of boos and a lot of jeers, um, which is probably not very fair, but football fans hold grudges. 
and they don't go over things very quickly. So I think Grealish is going to be in for a bit of a, a torrid reception, despite the fact that I don't think he really did very much wrong. And uh, I don't really agree with that. Uh, four days later, 5th of December, Gerard goes head to head with Brendan Rodgers, his former boss from his Liverpool days. The Rodgers obviously now in charge of Leicester. And things don't pick up for Leicester quite soon. That might be a position in which Brendan Rodgers really, really needs to get a result. Uh, 11th of December, so six days after the the, the Rogers face-off, Gerard goes to Anfield. I mean, this is going to be a feasting frenzy for the national media. Absolute feasting frenzy. Gerard has already talked about this in his introductory interview with his new club. He's talked about... It's good um, to know where his priorities are. No, so he's already... Because he got asked about it by the in-house media team. And he was like, look, I'm manager of Villa. I'm going to go there. I'm going to try and win. Like, you know, he's not going to be there touching the sign or anything like that. And... um. I actually do remember when Villa appointed uh, Gerard Houllier and they went they went up to Anfield and they played and Houllier touched the sign and he basically just talked wax lyrical about Liverpool and he took in the applause of the fans and Villa got battered and it didn't look like he cared. So um, the fans are pretty wary about this one. So this is uh, Gerard has already made the right noises and saying, I'm Villa manager, I'm going to go and try and win. Um, and then 14th of December, so three days after that, Dean Smith back at Villa Park. You know, the... The sort of emotion, emotional decision that Villa fans are probably still struggling with a bit. Boyhood fan of the club, now removed from his position as manager. And all of a sudden, eight days later, takes a job at Norwich. And, you know, about a month later, he's going to be back at Villa Park in the opposing dugout. So that's from the 1st through to the 14th. Grealish's return to Villa Park. Gerard versus Brendan Rodgers. Gerard back to Anfield and Villa against Dean Smith. Blimey, they're going to need a Christmas break, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, well, they're not going to get one. But, um, yeah, it's a, it, it's, it's. There's a lot of narrative going on. I like this, Sam. Basically, what we've done here is flip the podcast today. You're talking about narrative streams, uh, and I'm doing <laughs> the main ranking. So you know, we really have, um, really have taken things into mm. the extreme with one weekend away, and we've completely ru- ruined all the roles <laughs> of said podcast and uh, changed things around. So yeah. there is that. Um, but yeah, look, this is there's there is heavy with narrative, isn't it? Dripping, some would say, uh, with narrative arcs. I, I'm excited. Also, is Dean Smith last Monday sacked by Aston Villa or last Sunday sacked by Aston Villa, Monday morning appointed by Norwich City? Eight days. Surely that's the quickest managerial turnaround in Premier League history for someone being sacked to someone being reappointed. It's got to be. And, you know, he's going to he's going to manage back to back games against Southampton. (laughs) Because Norwich's first game out of the break is Southampton. He got sacked after Villa's loss to Southampton. Wow, he must be sick of this like Ralph Hatton. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, when they do the manager's handshake at the start, be like, all right again. Yeah, all right, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hassan was trying to get in his head. He's like, remember how this went last time? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, If he loses, he gets sacked and he becomes manager of whoever Southampton have got the week after. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a round robin. He just has to keep going until he wins. Yeah, exactly. And then he gets to stay at that club forever. Yeah, yeah. What a a game this would be. What a game. Um, Right, I want to, I'm going to take things international for the first time, but very much not the last on today's podcast. Um, And there was nowhere else for me to go this apart from the redemption arc of Alexander Mitrovic is the thing I love this week right 12 months ago almost to the day 
Alexander Mitrovic misses a penalty that means that Serbia miss out on the Euros. Scotland qualify in their stead. David Marshall saves a Mitrovic penalty in a shootout. Um, in a year that Mitrovic really struggled with his personal demons, with getting on the pitch for Scott Parker's Fulham, you know, re- failed to get minutes ahead of Ivan Cavallero, who was a winger turned striker and basically didn't score any goals. And yet Mitrovic was left kind of out in the cold. A year later, he comes on at halftime against Portugal and in the 90th minute scores the goal that sends Serbia to the World Cup in a year where he has scored 20 goals in 17 league games under Marco Silva for Fulham. It was kind of just the perfect redemption story in, in so many ways. Now, you might be looking at this and going, Mitrovic doesn't need a redemption story because he's Serbia's all-time top scorer. He scored 44 goals in 69 games for Serbia, right? (laughs) This is someone who is well-loved within his country. And I had some responses talking about this on Twitter and, you know, discussing it. Someone said there have been players who have been more talented than Mitrovic for Serbia. You look at the likes of Mijatovic, right? But who have never, ever shown the kind of desire, heart for the cause, maybe perhaps that the Mitrovic shows every time he pulls on that shirt. And and I think there's there's something so incredible about the kind of context in which this story, you know, makes itself known. And the fact that we're talking about this and talking about a player who, you know, at times has been ridiculed, you know, and, and look, there was there was some really interesting stories last year. And and obviously Dragan Stojkovic is the Serbia head coach and there's some really kind of interesting you know things around this and in March there was a a problem and someone asked about this before the game on Sunday and he said what happened in March he said the coach said to Mitrovic people are asking me why I called you up they have a right to ask me that I told them I'm calling you to the team because you're playing in England and they said no he's not he's on the bench um and and I think this is it. You know, this isn't something that he he said. And Mitrovic believed him. He said, "I told him, don't let those people be right." He scores that amazing goal against Ireland that sort of started this redemption fire. I think in in March. And and eventually, you look at this and you go, right, this is a player who feels like he's absolutely loving himself. He is full of confidence, full of fire, loving being back in front of fans. And just on the whole, it felt like such a, a feel-good moment, you know, not just as a Fulham fan, but as someone who has obviously loved seeing Alexander Mitrovic in the, the, the tops of his form, have, has struggled with seeing him at the bottom and trying to work out how he fits into different sides. But you watch him this year and he is just a man playing with a smile on his face, playing in the form of his life. And it is a real delight to see players bounce back from difficult times it, with, with performances like this and with a with a moment like that as well, because it was so, so hard earned. And you look at what it meant to Serbia, what it meant to Serbia fans who have kind of struggled, I think, in general with a, with a lot of things since obviously becoming independent. They've kind of failed to really make a mark on the international stage. And there was obviously that win against Germany in the World Cup. But on the whole, that was caveated by the fact that the two results either side of it were poor and they didn't really mean anything in the grander scheme of things. This is the first maybe massive result in Serbia's independent history. And you compare and contrast that with Croatia, right? Their next door neighbours, their eternal rivals who have got to a World Cup final, who have got to a World Cup semi-final, who have kind of, with a similar infrastructure and a similar kind of size, have really kicked on in the football world in a way that Serbia perhaps haven't. There's been a lot of envious glances, I'd imagine, shared across that border. This felt like a real moment for Serbian football. And it was, you know, uh, uh, you know, had their whole weight of narrative behind it as well. 
Yeah. Helps that he's our hero as well, huh? It does help. It does help. It's a it's a massive, <laughs> massive bonus. But on the on the whole, I think I'd be talking about this if it was anyone. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Just ha- it just it just happens it, to be got a season to ticket and watch him play every week. That is also true. <laughs> it generated an amazing photo as well, an absolutely iconic photo of him whipping his shirt around. Uh it's it's yeah. this pure like unfettered joy I can see on his face. And it's not often yeah. you get to capture that moment. It's pretty iconic. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, that is the first of our international discussions, but very much not the last. After the break, we are going to be talking all things World Cup 2022 pretty much a year in advance and uh, looking at some of the contenders, the dark horses, the teams in danger of not making it and those with the most to do ahead of the World Cup. Welcome back to Ranks FC. It's time for the big ranking. You'll notice we really actually have swapped jobs now. And uh, Jack, do you want to take it away? Yeah, I mean, look, isn't isn't this nice? I mean, look, one 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 week into being verified, and you're letting me do rankings, which makes oh, me feel like I've been verified. Oh, you've been verified. I've been verified. So this is it. Like you, you said that I could never do a ranking until I was verified. Now here we are, right? We are straight away, straight away. Him. You're like, let's 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 put all the work on Jack. Now he's done this. He's ranking every. <laughs> country in the world look i watch a lot of international football yeah. you've yeah. done your apprenticeship it's fine you're, you're now qualified qualified mm-hmm. we've made it we've made it okay we're going to be talking about the world cup in 2022 it's about a year and four days until kickoff and there's been lots of talk this week about the way that different leagues are going to be dealing with it we're not going to be talking about any of that but it's uh, it's been interesting to see that the premier league is starting seven days again after the world cup final so that's uh that's that's good you could will know Nobody think of the players uh, would be the the statement I would use. But we're going to do some Probably quick ranks. Surely none of them will play. You, don't, you never Surely. know. You never know. Um, we were saying we think we should just keep leagues going. Well, I guess there's only be two teams in the final, so all the others would have had a bit of a break anyway. Well, there'll be a third, fourth place playoff the day before, and the yeah, well, the semis. That. The semis are normally kind of two, three days beforehand, aren't they? Yeah, that's they that's when ten, it gets. Some might get a ten to England when they get knocked out in the semis. Will get like a ten, ten day break or something. We're we'll back in. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> we'll Ridiculous. get there, right? Anyway, we'll go get... on, crack on. Um, right, we're going to do four categories here. We're going to be talking about genuine contenders for the title if the World Cup was played tomorrow. We're going to be talking about the teams with the most to do uh, before it happens. We're going to be talking about some dark horses uh, and, of course, some teams in danger of not qualifying. And we'll start with real contenders. And it feels only right, I think, in third place here to start with the holders France, right? There's... There have been some questions, I think, about France over the Euros. Obviously, they were knocked out by Switzerland in that round of 16 on penalties. But it is also worth pointing out that France haven't lost a game of football since the turn of the decade, um, which is which is a pretty good place to be. And they obviously won the Nations League a couple of weeks back with a really impressive performance in Milan uh, against Spain. They turned up for the last sort of 20 minutes and just got the job done. And then they beat Kazakhstan 8-0 in midweek, which just sort of secured their spot in the, in the finals, but also in some sort of style. And I suppose the, the kind of big thing when you're talking about France is that the discussions in the summer were about Deschamps and whether this camp was actually a happy camp. There was obviously that kind of rumours that Adrian Rabiot's family were fighting with Kylian Mbappe's family and Paul Pogba's family were having it, having it off with different people. So there's a kind of this weird dis 
discord i suppose is 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 the kind of phrase i would use in the in the that lack of harmony Um, and yet i think that over the last couple of weeks we've seen france sort of develop into that new formation with the five at the back that's basically allowing teo hernandez to steam up and down that left hand side and and really kind of I think it's just been really, really enjoyable. We've seen Kingsley Coman trialed as a right wing back. There's almost nothing that Kingsley Coman can't do at this point. So that actually worked. Um, and it he, said, uh, he said, oh yeah, I thought it went pretty well when asked about his like debut wing back performance. Like, well, yeah, we're brilliant in an 8-0 win. Hey, I think it yeah. went pretty well. I mean, it gets you the, the Hernandez brothers in a, in together uh, at left back and left wing back, which is nice. It gives Kante a midfield partner. I'm not sure if that's going to be Rabiot for the, you know, by the time the World Cup comes around next year. But right now he seems to be doing OK. It gets Jules Koundé in there. Upa Meccano played last time. Again, not 100% sure that Upa Meccano will be starting for France when the World Cup comes around. But And it gives you that front three of Mbappe, Griezmann and Benzema, which is just let's face it as good as pretty much anything on earth and when you're looking at this team you're looking at the depth of this France squad you're looking at where they are I think that it would be mad currently to write them off and considering the way in which they qualified considering the depth of squad in which they have it just feels like France are a write up amongst it again and I think that turnaround since the Euros has been really impressive because there were genuine questions being asked, right? Obviously they were comfortable in that Switzerland game and somehow contrived to throw it away and then lose on penalties when they were, I wouldn't even say favorites. Dean, you said it before the Euros, it would take something pretty massive for France not to win the tournament. Well, that was it, right? That was the moment that it came and it was like, oh, yeah, that's sure why I'm not going, going through this again. I am not building France up ahead of the World Cup. I absolutely refuse to because that, that flew in my, like, I know I did say that, but they were, it was such a poor tournament from them. Like, they didn't, they won one game out of four. Mm-hmm. Like, that's so poor. And, like, I know you're saying they've had a big turnaround since the Euros. Well, well, that's all well and good, but the Euros were what mattered the most, and they didn't do it. They were so bad in terms of, not, not bad, that's the wrong word. They were disjointed. They, they never. They, they never were in full fluidity for an entire game. They would turn it on during spells when they needed goals, and then they'd get, they'd get, the, they'd get the goal they needed or the equaliser they needed, and they'd look to kick on, and it wouldn't come. And like that Switzerland game, like one nil down, they turn it around. They go 3-1 up. They're pegged back and draw 3 all, and then lose on penalties. Like That's completely unacceptable, really, of that side. Um, yeah, something's up there. And I feel like it's deep rooted and I feel like you see the flaws in them when they are forced to spend a lot of time together. So I completely understand what you're saying. Of course, they should be and will be hyped up as contenders for the World Cup next year. Um, They are on paper, definitely the team that you should be looking out for. You know, recently, like Nations League beat Belgium, beat Spain. Fine. Like that shows their pedigree of this team. But because of what happened in the Euros, I'm going to keep that in mind when it gets to the tournament. And I'm going to be like, I do not trust this team. I need to see them go through that group stage until I'm absolutely sure of what I'm getting from them. Because that's when I think you'll really be able to judge them. Yeah, I, I think you're right because that, and that's why I have them at third. You yeah, know, yeah, I think totally, if you're yeah. looking at if you're looking at this team in terms of quality and depth, I don't think there's a team in the world that can hold a candle to them. But we're yet to see that. But I think they're right back in this conversation. Whereas I think after Euros, you'd be going, "Ooh, not sure. Is that generation finished for France? Is it time for a reset?" Mm. Yeah, Jack, yeah. what's um, what's your your view on on Coman as a right wing back? beyond an 8-0 win at home against Kazakhstan? Because I think it's probably always fair to suggest that Benjamin Pavar is not 
a natural wing back. And there was a question mark over Pavard, wasn't there, after the Nations League semi-final and final. And obviously Deschamps has tried to now change something or try something new. And the early results are very good, albeit against a very poor side. I wonder how that changes the dynamic of the team. It's very on Deschamps, by the way, to uh, to pop a winger at wing back, a winger like Coleman as well. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think there's there's options though, isn't there? That's 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 what you get with France. You've got someone like Leo Dubois who has played there for France, uh, for Lyon, right? And, and and can come in there. Do I think that he's the starting option when it comes around to the World Cup? Probably not, no. But I, I think that there is there are definitely options here that France can look to to exploit. And look, if you look at the way the Belgium system works and the way that tilts right on on both sides, then then somehow you have Carrasco in the, in that role pretty much. And and that, when you work out exactly how that formation works I think that there's there's going to be scope to do so the fact that you can have Pavar there and, and and kind of drop into a four at the back and Lucas Hernandez sort of drifts a little bit further out left which he's relatively comfortable in I think that the left-hand side of a back three is probably where Lucas Hernandez is most comfortable right it seems yeah, to be the position definitely. I think he's he's most kind of sorted in and also you know if Teo goes on a crazy one if Teo gets himself sent off if Teo gets himself injured you have Luca Dean who is a, a more than capable replacement you have Furlon Mendy who's a more than capable replacement there are there are players here who can float in I, I'm not 100% sure who takes that starting right wing back berth at this point, given next Christmas or next winter. But I think that there's enough in this France side that they're going to be able to find the answers and and, and it, will, it will come. It's difficult for Coleman to acclimatise to that position because he, he won't play there for Bayern ever. No. So no, because the, they don't only play three. Yeah, the only opportunities that he's going to get to do this are with the national team. So these friendlies, there may not be a player on earth that's more important for than Kingsley Coleman if he looks to make a stamp on this team. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair enough. I mean, look, there's there, there are options, right? There, there, there's, I suppose you could you could even pull in like a, a Kevin Malqui, right? Who has been very good for for, for years and and could probably slit, slot in there without too much fuss. So there, there's options, but I think you're right. If they're going to look to put Komen into that role, then they're going to need to keep throwing him through these friendlies and keep throwing him through the mill and getting him in some you know competitive games with teams and kind of standings around them in order to get onwards. Yeah, or it could just be what England did with Saka against San Marino. Well, the opposition's not very good. Let's just play a winger at wing back. Yeah, I suppose. And also the option of Pavard allows you to play a little bit more defensively if you're coming up against, say, a left winger who you think is going to cause you problems. Um, and so they have those those options at their disposal. Um, I move on to number two, where I have Argentina, who are another side. I mean, look, we're recording this on Tuesday and they play Brazil tonight in San Juan. Um, so <laughs> this could change. But right now, Brazil and Argentina are another side who have not lost in 2020 uh, in, in normal time. So there is there is that to, to consider. They just feel, I think, Argentina, and we talked about this after they won the Copa, um, that they feel like they found a balance finally. Finally, after so many years under Scaloni, which allows them to not just give the ball to Messi and hope for the best, which it feels like it's been for far too long for a side with this much quality. Now, look, if you have Leo Messi and you have the best player in the world, you're obviously going to want to give him the ball as much as possible. That's completely fair enough. But if you if that is your only strategy, as Barcelona, I think, found out towards the, the new amount of his time there, if that's your only strategy the opposition could put six men around him because there's no other options. And I feel like for years, it felt like Argentina 
felt so stifled and stunted by the way that they were playing, by the selections around Messi. And in this Scaloni era, it feels like for the first time in a long time, Argentina are really, really at where they should be. And we're seeing this kind of midfield well, this, this kind of stunning midfield partnerships of, of Lo Celso, Paul, Paredes, and then on up front, Nico Gonzalez, whose work rate basically allows Messi to do whatever he wants, and Lautaro up top. Now, again, the depth that Argentina have in terms of defensive options for the first time feels like it's, it's there. Otamendi's still kicking about, but if you put him next to players of, of Ramon Pazella's quality and with a goalkeeper of the quality of Emiliano Martinez, it feels like... Argentina are right in this conversation. Now, Brazil obviously top of their qualification group and there'll be a lot of people looking at this going, how have you put Argentina in here and not Brazil? I just think Brazil feel like at the moment they have more questions to answer in terms of just how everybody fits and they've been good, Brazil. I'm not ruling them out. I think if this list was five teams long or four teams long, Brazil would probably be the fourth or fifth pick in here but right now it just feels like Argentina are a little bit more settled they've obviously got that copper win in their sails Messi feels like everything he's doing is gearing up to next uh, next winter's world cup which is something you maybe can't say for everybody else he feels like everything right now at PSG is is a back burner for him getting to their world cup in the best fitness and form that he can possibly be in and PSG fans won't thank me for saying that but I think that's where we are I think that's what we've got to and the fact that he basically executed that caveat in his contract to go to on international duty despite the fact he's missed the last three games of PSG with injury is a statement of where his priorities lie and with that in mind I think this Argentina side are, are, are well on for a title tilt now look, this all makes sense in terms of you can say all this and then they could draw a really horrible group or they could they could come up against France or any of these other sides in the first round of the knockouts and everything could go, you know, pear-shaped. But from where we are right now, it feels like Argentina are in a good place. I mean, they're going to be, surely everyone's, well, if you like Messi, everyone's second team at that World Cup. Like, wanting Messi to get his hands on that trophy is going to be everything. I mean, it's like that anyway at a World Cup, isn't it? You, you see whenever Argentina play, like everybody's got a Messi jersey on um, and you just want to see him produce those magic moments. And it's rarely happened. It's rarely happened. In fact, the time I saw him playing a World Cup game, he missed a penalty and was not very good. Um, it, it just hasn't happened. But this has to be his time because it's the last chance. This is the last World Cup he's going to play and he's going to be 35. Um, don't think he's going to be out there when he's 39, um, much as I'd like to see it. Even Messi has to come to an end at some point, and this is probably going to be it, right? Yeah. Just a quick point on Brazil. Um, disqualified from the list for being too boring. So don't worry about that. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> well, that's useful, isn't it? Yeah. Very, very useful. Look, Sam, we, we, we like what Argentina have done, but it does feel like they... They are in a, in a in an upward trajectory, which is probably important at this point, right? There's 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 always something you could be said for form going into these kind of things, and right now it feels like they're in a little bit of a, a rhythm that maybe some other sides quite aren't quite at. Yeah, they feel like a good group. Um, every now and then you get like a whiff of a of a of a of an international team who look like they prefer to play international football than domestic football. France and in 2018. France at 2018 was one, and we're not drawing an obvious. Like, oh, that means that they will win. Um, but you look at this group and you look at the way Rodrigo de Paul and uh, Messi and Lautaro and Romero and Lo Celso all love to go to international duty. Emmy Martinez as well is all too happy to get on a flight um, and go and play with with, with these guys. It's, um, it's a really impressive level of camaraderie and that 
that's hard to achieve in international football and it can't be ignored when you're looking at uh, contenders. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's lots of players here taking hits, right? They're taking quarantines they're taking missing premier league club games whatever it is in order to get on the plane and go and play for argentina and that's probably not a great thing for their clubs but on the whole in terms of when you're looking at what it means to play for argentina and look the celebrations when they won the copper right and the kind of emotion that poured out of that all all points in one direction and that's a, and that's a positive direction for argentina so um, just just whittling through this list i think i figured out who your number one is go on then usa <laughs> no, it's England. It's the US, isn't it? It's the it's USA or England. Neither of these teams. Um, the You've team left that I England think out would, of the top three. That's embarrassing. The team that oh. I think would win the World Cup tomorrow, if they if the World Cup starts tomorrow, is Germany. Um, since that two 0 loss to England, where England were much better than them at the Euros, they I went have, to that one. Did I tell you? You, you did, yeah, you did. You let, you, did, you, did you not record us a voice note with no voice? Um, I think, I think we, I think we heard the best of it. No right. idea. I don't remember the day. <laughs> um, but since they traded Yogi Love for Hansi Flick, Germany have won eight games in a row and were the first team to qualify for the World Cup in Qatar, aside from the hosts. Um, now, I think. There's you know, something to be said for the fact that their their group wasn't all too tricky in, in many ways and they, they've not played anyone of huge note. But I think what's maybe most important and perhaps the thing that stands out for me under Hansi Flick's kind of guidance to this team is one, how good Bayern were very, very quickly after Hansi Flick took over there. And two, the kind of sense that the old guard of this Germany team and the team, the players who were perhaps in there because of name rather than, or, or who they played for rather than what they were doing at the time seems to have been removed a bit. And Hansi Flick has opened this out, brought through a new younger generation while still keeping quite a lot of the old heads as happy. Um, and I think that just in terms of depth, in terms of squad, in terms of what he's doing in terms of rotations and being able to test out different players, work out who fits the system. And this is, I think, maybe his greatest advantage, Hansi Flick, is that he won't bow to, oh, I'm going to put this player in because he is the name. He's going to play the team that he thinks gels best together, works best together, and will manage to keep his dressing room happy. And for me, I think that what Germany have done, how they're playing, what they're looking at while still rotating really heavily and watching this kind of revival is, is has been really impressive. I think this Germany side are, are on a one-way ticket to the top again. Yeah, I saw that Bill did a thing the other day about about how things have been under Flick and uh, the big winners and losers of, of you know his time. And, and the winners uh, among them, uh, I won't list all of them because they did seven of each, but Leroy Sané was the one that they they put at the top of the list. Said he's he's made that dis- decisive step. He's much more effective now, uh, coming up trumps every game. Thomas Muller was in there, you know, still like he's he's still in there. He's thirty two, um, but he's still the leader of this pack, and you need a player in there that's that's like that. Um, Adi Yemi obviously made his debut under Flick. He's the future of this team. You know, the the opposite, I guess, of Muller. Like they got both ends here taken care of. And then you've got somebody, I guess, like Marco Royce, who was written off so many times in recent years. Um, Flick is starting to rely on him again. And if he can steer clear of injuries, then he's going to be so important. Losers, I'll just list them. They put Hummels, Goetze, Gosens, uh, Julian Brandt, Draxler as well. I mean, so like you say, this guy is not scared of 
of axing people and reputations. He'll pick his team based on exactly how he thinks he's going to get a result. And this is what Germany needed. They needed to get rid of Yogi Love and, and actually have a reset because there were too many predetermined factors in his mind that he couldn't shake off. And that reputation of years gone by was never going to see them through forever. Um, in the end, that team that England beat, that's a shadow of past Germany teams. You know, we expected to win that day and that's very rarely been the case that I've gone into a game England versus Germany expecting to win and it was the case and to be honest it was reasonably easy as well um, that I don't think will be the case the next time that England play Germany I hope to be honest it's not at the World Cup I hope we manage to avoid them when they get knocked out before we have to play them because they'll certainly be looking for revenge and yeah I can see why you've, you've got favourites it's to guess a bit of an unknown because they haven't performed well at tournaments recently um, but this isn't you can almost forget it because the players are going to be different versions of themselves. The team tactically is going to be different and yeah, they're going to be a different animal from here on, I think. Yeah, it's kind of scary. I, I can see why you've done it. I'm surprised that you've put them at number one. I know that you've got a lot of love for Argentina and with the, the cachet of having the um, the recent tournament win, uh, I kind of assumed that they'd be top. You can never discount France's level of quality, but Germany under Flick, with the level of quality they have and with the level of quality that Hansi Flick has already worked with, like firsthand for the, over the course of a year and a half or two years, oh, it's very scary. A Bayern core to a Germany team, the core which won the Champions League a couple of years ago, it's, it does all point one way, you're right. I probably wouldn't have them first just because they haven't necessarily proved that much. I did actually just take a quick look at the group. You mentioned it wasn't the strongest. Oh, that's a nice way of putting it. It's it's full of UEFA Nations League D teams. Um, so there's there's plenty yeah, to A come. little bit more respect on North Macedonia's name, please. Um, some side. Are they in the C? Yeah, they're in C, uh, aren't yes, they? Yes, they're yeah, in sorry. C. And I think be. they won. If I'm not mistaken, I think they, they, they won their Nations League group. So um, And they've just yeah. qualified for the playoffs. So very decent side. Um, yes, yes, very, yes, very good. I do very appreciate good. your point. But they are scary. I am scared. I live in yeah. fear. I, I live in fear is, is one way of putting things. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I think we should move on with that, with the teams with most to do. Uh, and I can start with a side in third here who have qualified already, which is potentially a little bit harsh, um, but I think it's important to talk about them. And that side is Spain. And the reason I have Spain in the teams with most to do here is because I think if Spain worked this out, they could challenge for the World Cup. Like I think that Spain are not miles off being genuine contenders for this World Cup. And yet it feels like they're still in this weird transition phase that they can't quite get out of. And I suppose the kicker here is I think Luis Enrique is a wonderful, wonderful coach. Um, and I think that this group of players is more than talented enough to make sure that they are in the conversation for getting to the final. And look, you look at Spain, right? And we were talking about them last week and we were talking about the fact that Spain, despite the fact that they got to a semi-final in the Euros, they had two games that they needed to win. They needed to go to Greece and win and then they needed to come back home and beat Sweden in order to guarantee qualification automatically. Now, they did both of those things and it's a massive, massive compliment to them and to Lucho that they managed to pull that out and especially the fact that he was able to keep rotating this squad, keep moving it about, keep changing things up and freshening things up, I think. But with all that said, 
it still feels like Spain are fragile, Sam. And, and I think maybe this is the, the really weird kind of dichotomy here is that you can celebrate what they've done and celebrate the fact that Raldo Tomar of Espanyol is getting a look in and the Real Sociedad players are getting a look in. So they should. They're top of the Liga. But, you know, ultimately, for years, we've seen players from Real Sociedad, from Espanyol, from Celta Vigo, all kind of ignored for the big guns, right? That's that's something that we've seen over a long time. Lucho has started to change that, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's a I think it's something just to keep keep things fresh, but also to acknowledge the fact that Barcelona and Real Madrid are not quite the powerhouses that they perhaps once were. Um, and then you kind of look at this and go, right? How do you sort this back line out? Because we're still not sure that. <laughs> Of, of what this kind of centre-back partnership is going to be. Eric Garcia still seems to be loved by Lucho, despite the fact that his partnership with, well, with Emmerich Laporte is a little bit lightweight at best. Um, the fact that we're not quite sure how this all pans out yet. And yet, here they are. So I do remember a time, and it was a while ago, to be fair. Uh, I do, But I do remember a time when Spain... Uh, because of the way they play international football at different stadiums around their nation, they kind of they don't have like a national. They don't. T- they didn't tend to play at a national stadium. They tend to take it on a tour. Um, yep. They used to call up a player from that city or that club. So if they were going to play at the Pithuan in Sevilla, they would call up probably Vitolo or something and play Vitolo in front of the home crowd and add him into a a mix of ten different Barcelona or Real Madrid players, and then they'd. You know, they'd move north and they'd go somewhere else and they'd, they'd call up a Real Sociedad player and they'd, they'd play him with the other 10. And yes, we definitely moved away from that. It's it's very multicultural now in terms of the, the context and culture of Spain. Uh, and that is because, yeah, you're right, the, the Barca teams and the Real Madrid teams are not among seemingly the top five teams in, in European football right now. And he has to look elsewhere. He has to look at players from Villarreal. He has to look... Abroad, you know, he has to look at Laporte as his overall, let's be honest, best central defender. Um, someone that has only been Spanish in inverted commas in terms of FIFA regulations for uh, six months, probably yep. something like yeah, that. Yeah, so chucked right in at the deep yeah, end. Right? So that's 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 the measure of where they are, and you know the the teams that you talked about as the genuine favourites. You know, Germany have a very clear identity when it, when it comes to picking their back line. David Raum, for example, was slotted in at left back and looks like the pick along with some centre-backs that Hansi Flick knows how to get a tune out of. Argentina have a, a, a bedrock in, in, in Romero and Molina at right back has, has really has really stepped forward. France's back five feels like it's really in sync now. There's a, there's a commonality between these teams that you're talking about in the first section versus you know, whatever this is, you know, and, and that's that's the potential downfall. I love the fact that De Tomas is, is, is leading the line. He feels perfect for Spain. He does. And number nine for Spain don't need to do too much except stick it in the back of the net. There was and- an interesting comment on the commentary the other day. It said the number nine role since perhaps Fernando Torres and David Villa were, were part of this has felt like a guest spot. For Spain, you know, <laughs> people just people just kind of roll in and out of it at will, um, which I thought was maybe a little bit harsh on on Alvaro Morata, but on the whole, you know, not not too far off the truth. Just searching for an answer, aren't they? Then have been for a long time. I don't know if Raúl de Tomás is the answer, but it's nice to see him given a shot, and it's just nice to see Lucho kind of recycling his options there in 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 the areas we're looking at and going. You're, there's a problem here, there's a problem there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, there's, there's probably a, a checklist of three things here uh, for Lucho to solve. And yeah, I don't think you can necessarily con- uh, consider them as genuine contenders until he really does sort out this centre-back mess. Yeah, 
Yeah, this is it. This uh, I think that's the 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 main one for me. If you can get if you can get a, a partnership here that works, and look, we saw Pau Torres and Emery Laporte for some periods in the it, across the course of the Euros. Don't like two left footers. I'll be honest. Um, Why don't you bring, like two left footers? What's wrong? I don't know. I don't know. There's something about it that just doesn't make me feel comfortable. I think it's probably both because they both prefer playing on the left hand side of a defensive line more than anything else. You know, you can have two right footers as long as one of them prefers playing on the left, but. They are. That's a, that's a kind of different argument, right? And and I don't think either of Pau Torres or Amrik Laporte prefer playing on the right. Well, I, think it's, I think it's almost right. impossible to find a left footer that will prefer to play on the right because but of there's the, plenty of right footers that play on the left. Because more often than not, players are right footed, so they will have had to play there. Whereas a left footer mm. will never be used to playing on the right because they're left footed. So you put them on the left. So there is an awkwardness to it. I wouldn't rule it out as like something. No, no, that no I don't never, think it's. I don't think it's never a, possibly work. But, no, I don't think it's a full stop, but I think no. I, I, I'm not comfortable with it. I don't know why. It, 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 and I think we saw at the, at the Euros, it wasn't, maybe it's because it was a new partnership. There's a lot of questions, but equally, it never felt completely right. Uh, and then obviously Eric Garcia comes in. We know, you know, this podcast has, has been well known for its discussions on whether Emric, Eric Garcia is, is capable of playing for Barcelona, for Spain. Um, it just feels that there is that physical deficiency um in terms of his game but you know that if that's what lucho is looking for in terms of his partner for whoever is on the left hand of this defense then perhaps there is a way of making it work um i just think that you know the midfield is is is, is wonderful there's been so much of it that we've really enjoyed watching we've enjoyed seeing gavi who was who was brilliant we've enjoyed seeing pedri who will return to this side whether they can play together i suppose is another question who fits in at the bottom of that but ultimately the attacking options and the midfield options are are there, right? It's a question of whether you can build a bedrock on which this can perform. And if he can, and I think he can, which is why they're at the bottom of this list rather than the top of it, I think Spain are genuine contenders. Fair enough. All right, number two is Uruguay, who I think are in a in a kind of weird place right now. They've lost their last three games. Um, they lost 3-0 to Argentina, then 4-1 to Brazil, then 1-0 to a Messi-less Argentina in Montevideo, which is not great vibes, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and there's been some questions, we've fielded some questions about whether Oscar Tavares is the man to take this group forward. Now, look, Oscar Tavares is a legend of Uruguayan football, right? He has been incredibly, incredibly useful as this boss in his second stint or third stint. I think it's his second stint in charge of the national team. And it's been really, really important. He's been there since 2006. There's, he's qualified for three World Cups. He's reached the round of 16 twice. He's reached the semifinals. You know, the, the, I think you get to where where he's got to. And you think, what a what a kind of, well, a stint in charge of this national team. He's also 74 years old and wedded to a 4-4-2. And I think there comes a point, and maybe we're seeing something very similar with Portugal, who we're going to get on to, um, and the fact that the new generation coming through and what's at his disposal is not being given a fair crack at the whip because of his loyalty, perhaps, to some of the older guard um, and also the fact that this 4-4-2 formation perhaps doesn't get the best out of all the players at his disposal, right? And so when we, what we are here is, is stuck a little bit, I think, with, with Uruguay. And those three losses on the spin um, are, are not great. And I think that... Uruguay's 
fixtures remaining mean that they probably will qualify and they probably will qualify in an automatic spot. Uh, but you, you look at this team and you think, is this a team that right now I, I foresee getting out of a group in the World Cup? And the answer is no. And I think that's a disappointing thing considering where Uruguay have been of late and and the talent in this squad. And you look at, you know, all these players coming through and we've talked about Ronald Araujo on here before and the fact that he is a wonderful, wonderful defender. You look at you know, some of it and you look at Jose Jimenez, who's been brilliant for years. You look at the fact that coming through in a kind of attacking sense is Darwin Nunez and Diego Rossi. And, and, and yet we're kind of seeing the old guard continue to dominate. Now, Luis Suarez is still scoring goals, right? So, and Edison Cavani is still a wonderful player. I'm not saying that these players don't have a space in the squad, but I'm damn saying that perhaps the time for change and to kind of start to renovate the squad, Luis Suarez will be nearly 36 by the time this World Cup comes around. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, players who have started perhaps to get over their peak. And you're looking at Darwin Nunez and we're saying, could go on to be one of the best all-round number nines in Europe if he continues on the trajectory he's currently on. Why is he not getting the game time? Why is he not being allowed to come through? And if that's at the expense of a a Suarez who will be, as we say, nearly 36, that's a slight worry for Uruguay. And I think that they're stuck in between stations in a way that not a lot of teams are. Yeah, they are stuck, aren't they? Um, They definitely have the talent levels to play in a more expansive way. Um, That may not necessarily be the the best strategy for them, but we'd like to see it given a go, I guess, after all this time. And the fact that they haven't really challenged at the top top level um, compared to where they were maybe eight years ago or so, that the approach hasn't changed, but the results have just kind of got worse. And you look at that and you think, well, maybe you need to have a look at that. But a midfield of, of Benton Core and, and Federico Valverde is capable of dictating a nice possession rhythm game. They just don't really get the opportunity. Darwin, I think he's injured at the moment, but hasn't really had much of a look in in general. And Diego Rossi, I don't think has had a cap. Um, Just double check that. No, he hasn't been capped. He's been called up to a preliminary squad here and there. I don't think he's actually made made the pitch just yet for Uruguay, which is, yeah, they've got got the tools here to play with and, and be more fun, but they they don't want to. I wonder if, you know how like in European football, we have such a clear and obvious calendar. Every two years we have a cycle where the opportunity to make a managerial change is very obvious. Because they hold a Copper America approximately every seven and a half weeks, is there no real obvious place to change manager because you would jeopardise the current cycle? Is that the problem here? Perhaps. Perhaps. Or maybe it's the fact that there's an absolute legend of the Uruguayan game in charge and he kind of has the spot until he decides that he doesn't want to have it anymore. Yeah, um, maybe, and I maybe. think that's basically where it is. And, uh, you know, as you'd say similar for Fernando Sanchez to Portugal, yeah, right? And, huge and parallel. That there's, you know, he's done so well and been so, so impressive with this Uruguay squad that it feels almost, it feels almost disrespectful to get rid of Oscar Tavares. But yet we are getting to a point where perhaps that change needs to be enacted if Uruguay are to fulfill the potential that I think is within this squad. Um, and I, look, it's, it's, it's a really hard one and I appreciate that. And it's not, it's not one of those things you, you do lightly, right? Because there's, there's so much going on here that it's, <laughs> It's difficult, and, and and then when you when you look at that, it's it, it's hard to push on. But Uruguay are ranked, you know, fifteenth in the world. It would be a real, real mess if they are not at the point where you know they're they're here. They are the third best on paper country in the Commonwealth qualifiers. And right now, they're not at that point within this qualification cycle. They don't feel like the third best side. I think they will qualify. I think they will qualify automatically, but 
at the moment, I don't think they're close to fulfilling that potential that they have. And that's a, that's a problem for me. Fair enough. Okay, we'll move on to number one, which is Italy, um, who last night were condemned to the playoffs Ooh. after a nil-all draw Jeez. with Northern Ireland at Windsor Park, combined with a 4-0 win for Switzerland at home over Bulgaria. Um, now, Italy have passed up chance after chance after chance to qualify automatically for this tournament. Um, and... I suppose I have them top of this list because a little bit like Spain, this Italy side should be capable of winning the World Cup, right? Um, and Mancini has said so this week. He said, we'll qualify through the playoffs and we might win the tournament. So at least he still has the confidence in doing so. Just think that for where they are right now, Italy just feel maybe off the back of the, off the, back of the Euros and the fact that it hasn't quite clicked since then. They've just been a little bit hesitant would be my phrase they just feel a bit like they are suffering a hangover right and since then yes their unbeaten record went against Spain after what was just a phenomenal set of results but sure but after that they've drawn you know one two three four of their last seven games and they include twice against Switzerland, which would have put the group to bed, uh, a draw against Bulgaria where in Florence where they had 75% possession um, and Bulgaria had one shot on goal and it was it was the equaliser. Um, they drew against Northern Ireland last night. Look, Northern Ireland put on a spirited display and were probably unlucky not to win. Um, but Italy failed to really muster anything when they knew that they really needed to go and win that game, right? It's the moment that Switzerland scored that first, it was it was on and it was going to be a foot race to the line. And Italy kind of failed to shift gears. And perhaps the thing that worries me most now about this Italy side and why they're top of this list is that I saw that lineup yesterday and I thought that's not miles off what would be my perfect Italy lineup. I like the idea of Insigne as a false nine because it allows you to play Chiesa in his preferred position on the left. It allows you to play Berardi cutting in off that right-hand side um, and doesn't kind of burden you with this worry of who this number nine is and if they're going to score goals because Insigne dropping in, one, allows you to do that and two, is kind of the nation's golden boy and can do what he likes. Um, and so there's that kind of, it takes the pressure off that and yet they really did fail to create um, and, and I think that's a, a real concern going forward because Italy don't feel quite as much like they need a renovation. They are the European champions. They are a team who have just gone through one of the most remarkable unbeaten runs in international history. Um, and yet, here we are looking at them and going, are they a little bit unlucky to be in the playoffs? Yes. Are they a side who right now feel like they could beat anyone in the world? No. And you kind of think when the European champions don't feel like that just six months after winning. And look, I called them as, as winners of the Euros before it started. I thought that this Italy side, the way that they tilted, the way that the midfield worked, the whole system felt like it was in sync with everything Mancini was trying to do. And I think when Mancini took over and he kind of restarted this cycle for Italy, it felt like he you know, pushed into youth, right? And really did kick on and, and start to move like players on the old guard and, and, and bring a new generation through. And perhaps he's struggling a little bit right now to do that same thing in a second run. And that's, I think, what's intriguing me most here. I'm trying really hard not to... Um, Overreact. Yeah, I don't... And I'm trying not to, to rewrite history because it's very tempting to do so when you consider that, yes, they won the Euros and they deserve to win the Euros. They were the best team. But they did draw their last three games and win them all on penalties. And then they've gone into that qualification process and they've drawn a lot of games. And they've lost their um, sense of 
stardust i guess they've lost they've lost their um their excitement value and it can't just be down to the fact that leo spinazzola is injured he can't possibly be that important to the team but you do look at that that team against uh, against Northern Ireland, and I appreciate there are some injuries that are obviously going to keep some players out, like Spinazzola. But you look at Emerson there, obviously nowhere near the player. Um, and did a good job filling in in the tournament, but can't really carry the left side like Spinazzola does or can't do it at all. I'm very still very surprised that Bastoni just cannot make it into this team. His passing range. He did be- leave the camp. He did leave the camp injured. To be fair. Did he? Okay. So Acherby comes in and I don't think he's played particularly well, but there's still a real hesitance to to integrate someone like Bastoni. And then there's the, the number nine conundrum, which you should, like, regardless, you should beat Northern Ireland. As uh, This is the only game I saw of the break. And they did have two amazing chances before Northern Ireland started piling the pressure on. Italy squandered two one-on-one scenarios that they should they just should have buried the game simple as that they should have won it and they have ultimately just not been executing for a little while now and you you might be right might just be a bit of an emotional hangover from the euros it might just be a natural depression as you go up and then you go down again uh coming back to the norm uh but it's it's as i say i'm trying not trying quite hard not to rewrite too much history but they sort of got over the line at the euros and have never picked themselves back up again have they yeah, it felt like it was like the kind of gargantuan effort to get over that line, mm. to like force it home. And yeah. perhaps it's just like the kind of relief of doing that, winning a tournament and just kind of setting back off it, right? But And I suppose this is a side currently missing Chiellini, Bastoni, yes, Spinazzola, of course, but then also Lorenzo Pellegrini, Nicola Zanaiolo, Marco Verratti, Gaetano Castrovilli, Stefano mm. Sensi, Ciro Mobile, Moise Keane. Like there is a lot missing, Yeah, but... Even still, the players that are in this squad and are more than capable of getting what's done. And, and look, that Jorginho penalty is the one that stands out, right? As the that's going to be the oh, if Jorginho just scored that penalty, Italy would be there. It'd be done, dusted, finished, whatever. But you know, you can't just lay that all on Jorginho's plate. You know, no. it, it does it does come to a point where you have to go. Okay, yes, sure, but you shouldn't. It's a bit like we were talking about Chelsea in the in the group stages of Champions League, right? And you're saying Chelsea are good, but Jorginho probably shouldn't be their top scorer with two. That's you know, that's not really ideal. And and when you look at the Sydney side, you're like, okay, you shouldn't really be needing to rely on 90th minute penalties to put teams away. This is a side full of quality, and it just needs to rediscover that stardust, as you say. I, I think it will be fine. Um, but on the whole, I'm not quite sure what needs to change. And if they're going to have the, I think it'll be fine in that they'll get, I think they'll get to the tournament and I think they'll get out of the groups, but I think they have maybe the most to do if they are to become challengers again. And maybe some of that is emotional. Maybe some of it is, you know, trying to pick yourselves up after a a strange kind of period. Uh, And also then working out the kind of kinks in this system at left back up front, how this all fits together. If you are going to become magic again, because at the moment it feels like you stick two men on Chiesa and you kind of cover off what Insigne is doing and hope he doesn't score a screamer and you've kind of got Italy in the back. Yes, I think they have the most to do because they have the personnel issues that you've discussed with Uruguay and Spain, plus the fact that they will enter the World Cup if they make it with incredible expectations surrounding them as European champions, the reigning European champions, and the team that did so well to win that tournament, the best team of the Euros the year before. There will be an incredible amount of expectation on this team, and there'll be an incredible amount of expectation on players like Federico Chiesa, you know, Nico Barella, and they have to fight against themselves in a way to refine their level. So you're right, there's, 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 there's plenty to do, and it's on multiple levels. 
Okay. Um, I'm going to go through these dark horses a little bit quicker because I appreciate we're running on a wee bit long here. And I'm going to start at three with Serbia. Um, and I think that the key here Shot. is that... man sitting there in a Serbia shirt who just sung the praises of his local hero, Alexander Mitrovic, is naming Serbia as a dark horse. Look, I'm going to put this really simply, and it's, a, it's something that you and I have talked about before in live score, and it's the fact that Serbia are really good at putting the players that they have who are the best players for them in positions that suit them, right? Serbia play a 3-4-1-2, and in that system, they allow Aleksandr Mitrovic and Dusan Vlavic to play up front together. They allow Luka Jovic to come off the bench and play with a strike partner, which he's good at. They allow Dusan Tadic to have the freedom of the park pulling the strings. They allow Milinkovic Savic to burst out of a pivot and do what he does best keep Nikola Milenkovic on the right-hand side of a back three, and they play Filip Kostic on, in his preferred wing-back position. Now, if you are a side of Serbia's calibre, of Serbia's kind of squad depth, what's best is that you get your players who are game-changers into positions where they can change games. And of all the sides that I'm seeing, Serbia are perhaps the best at this. They just know how to get the players they need to have in the right positions in the right positions. And I think that is massive. That, for me, makes them dark horses. Yes, yes. Put the four or five great players you have in positions to succeed and fill out the rest. It's actually not that hard, is it, sometimes? Sometimes it's easy. It's, <laughs> it's not always this easy, I'll be honest. There's, there's a point to be made that it's not always as easy as sometimes it seems. Yeah. But Serbia have a, are doing a good job of making it feel that easy, right? And, and yeah. I think that's, um, that's a nice touch. Yeah, so. Honestly, it's a different level because the talent level is different. But this is another thing I think that Hansi Flick is getting right. He's putting, yeah. he's put all of his players that he puts into certain, they're all in the right position. It's like, there's a couple of, a couple of square pegs in round holes just to make it work. But you've got the priority on the seven or eight players here that are in their natural positions. And international football, it is a, it is a bit of a jigsaw puzzle like that. You don't get to sign new players that are perfect for your team. You have to work with what you have in your national pool. Now, every national pool is a different size, but even at the level of a Germany or maybe even like so, so like in England or Spain or whoever, you still need to you still need to put a, a couple of players in specific areas just to make the system work. And Hansi Flick is getting that right. And on a different level, Serbia are also getting that right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, moving on to number two. Uh, and I'm putting Morocco in here. Now, this is a tricky one. And it's hard to put African teams into this, considering the way that CAF qualification works. And so it, it does make things a bit difficult. But I do think that Morocco have something about them that I really, really like. Now, they're African Nations Championship winners in 2018 and 2020. And I just think, as opposed to Algeria, who were the other team I was considering for this role, the age profile of this squad is perfect, right? It's perfect. And they feel like they're in a real kind of like funk at the moment. Morocco have won eight games on the spin. They are moving in a, a way that feels like they are pushing onwards rather than kind of retracting. And I think that one, they're going to be massive, massive contenders when it comes to AFCON. Um, and two, you just read this kind of squad out and obviously it's Yassini Bono from Sevilla. The, the wing backs are Akraf Hakimi, uh, Adam Messina. There's also, there's also a couple of players kicking around here in the likes of Roman Seiss and 
you know, who have a little bit more experience. And then you look at kind of the the options up top and you're looking at Sofiane Buffal, who's having a wonderful year at Angers, Munir, who uh, who used to play for Spain, famously, and now plays for Morocco. And the Siri leads the line. You know, we're looking at the likes of Hakim Ziyech returning to this squad. Adel Tarap might get back in. It's been a while since... He had a he had an actual game, but on the whole, you know, as a Tarapt reimbursed as a, a kind of defensive midfielder, Sofiane Amrabat, Yusuf Male, who are both at Fiorentina, I'm in Barcock, who I love at Frankfurt, and Elias Chair at, at QPR, who has been sensational in the championship this year and, and continues to to show real quality every time he's called up to this side. For the first time, I, I was just looking at this side and being like, oh, I really like this. And I, I watched them a couple of days ago as they beat Sudan 3-0. And so it was just a really, really impressive performance. And, and nothing about this side, I think, is is kind of digging into me as, as a problem. It doesn't feel like there's any problem areas. And I think there's a key kind of element, um, you know, that, that, that works here in that you're looking at this and thinking, yeah, OK, there's, there's a real squad togetherness. And whilst they're maybe not the current strongest side in Africa, I think by the time that next Christmas, next winter runs comes around, they might well be. It's such a difficult one, isn't it? Because as you say, there's the the kind of unseeded playoff, uh, which just pits you know anyone against anyone, and Morocco could could well just end up facing a, a really strong fellow strong African side and not make it. They can also then get completely boned for the group. And I remember feeling about like feeling like this about Morocco in 2018 or, or leading up to 2018 to a lesser extent because Hakimi was not yet the player that he is and a couple of others have really risen to the fore and the series another one who is now a, a top tier striker and he wasn't there in 2018 but it's it's the group isn't it they ended up with Spain and Portugal and they ended up really disappointing and ending up in a, a bottom of the group bottom of group B a great group for what it's worth with Iran as well really pulling up trees and picking up four points but it is so difficult to project these sides because they get stiffed here and they get stiffed there they have to work so hard to achieve even a round of 16 berth I feel like maybe possibly more than than almost anybody else yeah I, I think this is it and it but I do feel like this side is is capable of pulling up some trees this time mm. round um and look yes of course part of it is about what group you get put in and all of the above but and we're talking about this from a kind of cold perspective and yeah. they are the side that I'm most intrigued by. Obviously, Senegal are a wonderful side. Obviously, yeah. Algeria are a wonderful side. But I think the side I'm most excited about watching is Morocco. And that's why I put them in second here. Um, and top of this Dark Horses group are Denmark, who sound, this might sound a bit weird considering they lost 2-0 to Scotland last night um, in, in a very deserved 2-0 loss as well. I think this is important to say. You know, Scotland fully deserved that win yesterday uh, and they, they, they you know, were, were excellent, whereas Denmark weren't. But there's just something about a mentality in this Denmark squad that they feel like they're pushing on to something new. And obviously... You know, we, we talk about kind of bonds formed in the like darkest fires. And obviously there was the tragedy that fell Christian Eriksen at the Euros this summer. Uh, and actually what you're looking at now is a side that have been, you know, not only kind of fused together by that, but also have an absolute array of talent. And not to make excuses because there was plenty of first teamers in that side that lost to Scotland yesterday, but they are still missing a lot of players. You know, Jürgen Anderson's out of this side at the moment. Dalsgaard's out this side. Stryger Larsen's out this side. Delaney... Hoybier, Damsgord, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. And, Only so and much you can do against Chile, mate. 
when you know when Chele decides he's going to do what he's going to do, it, it it is difficult. But I do think that the amount of talent in this Denmark squad uh, and the togetherness that they're bringing as thing, the campaign pretty much up to that point had been flawless. They'd obviously qualified, and I did think that the mentality would mean that they might try and kick back against Scotland yesterday because they conceded a goal to the Faroe Islands. I thought that actually might mean that they they went into that with a with a kind of full kind of oh god we're gonna we're gonna punish them for us conceding a goal. But ultimately, win nine, lose one. One, score 30, concede three over a, a qualification campaign. Um, it, it's just sensational. And, and Denmark feel like, again, another one of these sides on a real upward trajectory moving forwards and that they're just a side that nobody is going to want to come up against. You know, when you said you might find it weird that I've got Denmark in here and you went on to say it's because they lost 2-0 against Scotland. I thought it was going to be I thought you were going to say uh, it's because they made the European semi-finals and took England through extra time. You know they've got some they've got some recent pedigree to get behind here, as well as the fact that they do feel like a fantastic unit. They've got the talent to cause anybody problems. They're as you say, horrible, horrible, horrible team to play against. The amount of energy that they manage to inject into a game and squeeze out of those legs is is truly remarkable. The manager Kasper Hjulmand is seemingly very, very good. Uh, I don't know an awful lot about him outside of a Denmark context, but I'm very intrigued by what Kasper. Yulman has managed to do and if you're still in the position to take them to the World Cup next year uh, and by that I mean not because they're going to get fired but because <laughs> top clubs domestic clubs are starting to look at Yulman you know they're starting to consider him they're starting to notice him and I, I'm very intrigued by that particular strain but yeah you can't really look out look away from I, I guess from Denmark I would question whether or not they are a dark horse are they a dark well, I think horse? A, I think they're. A, I think maybe for the other two, they're dark horses to progress further than people think. Denmark are probably a dark horse to win it. That's where I'm at. Yeah. No, no interest in. Uh, no interest in Turkey or Ukraine. Uh, I mean, I've just had my fingers burn a little bit too much at this point. So I'm going to keep... Well, Ukraine have, have themselves a dogfight to even get into the playoffs. So yeah. I think at the moment we're, uh, we'll have to leave them alone. Well, that'd be um, a real, be a real dark see. horse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, we're going to finish this off with three sides in danger that I'm going to run through. In danger of genuinely not qualifying. Um, and 3-2-1 here is how likely I think it is that they actually might not qualify. So the team at one are the team I think are in real, real trouble. Um at three, I'm going for Japan. Uh, Japan haven't missed a World Cup since 1994, which is a really impressive record, but the nature of AFC qualifying changing and a slow start has them playing catch-up in the race to make next year. I, I've put the third in this list because of these three, I think they're the most likely to make it, but there's still a long way to go here for the 2019 Asian Cup runners-up. Currently in the playoff spot behind both Australia and Saudi Arabia. We've played half of the matches currently, but it's been a bit of a slog. A loss to Oman on the opening day compounded by a 1-0 loss to the Saudis on match day three. They won over they won try against China in between those, but it was incredibly unconvincing. Did bounce back with a win over Australia, but there are cracks appearing in what many believe to be the strongest team in these Asian qualifiers. It's a good side, this Japan side, and I think the fact that they're even in this conversation is a bit nuts. Um, but, you know, at the moment in that third spot, they'd have to play against the third place team in the other group, which would then take them through into intercontinental playoffs. So if Japan don't qualify automatically out of these groups, it's a really, really tricky little feat that they might have to come up against. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty kind of you know, on the edge on, on where Japan are. I think they should have enough. This is a good squad, as we say. But ultimately, right now, I just... They feel a little bit unconvincing, Japan. Um, and that's not something I've said very often over the last sort of 10 years or so. Oh, Japan are a World Cup staple. This is surely against the rules. 
They are. They have it, especially considering their performance last time out. They were very, very unfortunate not to beat Belgium in the knockouts, weren't they? Yeah, so absolutely. it would be a shock. They bought the best shirt to the to the party as well. They did bring a good shirt. I, I mean, I, I actually still stand by the fact that I love that Spain shirt with the diamond pattern down the side of it. But I'm, I'm willing to accept that, that Japan's shirt was also excellent. Well, I bought the Japan one and you bought the Spain one. So we would say that. <laughs> So there we are. There we are. Um, at two here, I've gone for Portugal. Portugal are in here because of two reasons. The luck of the playoff draw means that they could come up against a very decent side in their playoff final. Uh, and mostly, though, I think, because for some time now, the Selecao have really flattered to deceive. Uh, this is a team whose attacking core in... Cristiano Ronaldo, Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes, Xiao Felix, Diego Jota, Pedro Gonçalves, Rafael Liao, Andre Silva, Gonzalo Guedes, Rafa Silva, Pedro Neto, Renato Sanz. It's quite frankly the envy of almost every nation in the world, right? And yet here they are, stunted, stifled, held back by a manager who's so wedded to his playing style and what he achieved with it. So you have to give some credit to Fernando Sanz. But I think he's now letting a golden generation go to waste. Portugal should still qualify unless they draw Italy, which would be unfortunate because there are, aside to say aside, no team on paper better than this side. Can they draw they Italy? Fluffed- yeah, they can. They can't draw them in the first round, but they can be put in the same path. Oh, so there's God. six seeded teams. There's two seeded teams in every path. Um, that is a nightmare. But- yeah, yeah. But look, Portugal fluffed their lines against the Republic of Ireland and then against Serbia in a big way. They whimpered out of the Euros. Their only win came in that late, late show against Hungary and Budapest. And currently, this is why they're in here. If I am Scotland or Sweden or Wales or Austria, I'm looking at these playoffs, I'm going, yeah, go on then, bring it on. And that is a huge concern if you're Portuguese. Yes, they have the talent to qualify. But ultimately, when you look at this, I think there is a moment that you go, right now... I'm not scared of Portugal if I'm anyone else. And that's not a good sign. Yeah, this is really strange, isn't it? This is really, really strange. A great parallel back to Uruguay, as we discussed before with Oscar Tavares and, and, and Fernando Sanchez. It's just really weird that he's squandering this level of talent and being so stubborn with some of his selections as well. I saw you talking to Zach Lowy on, uh, on Monday on Twitter about you know possible changes to the squad and a lack of refreshment and you know why Portugal haven't tried more seriously to to take a look at someone like Esri Concer you know Fernando Sanchez stuck in his ways in so many ways and most notably probably the fact that he loves his 38 year old center backs you know he doesn't want to move on from them very much and doesn't want to try new things and we we've talked about some teams here who feel a little bit stale at times Italy are in that conversation there is a staleness that has crept into their their setup post euros and Portugal, frankly, have been stale for five years. So when is it going to change? What, what, is, what is going to change that? And you get the impression it's a management thing, but let's see what happens, I guess. Well, I think there's, there's a point here that you can say that Portugal are probably going to change managers after the next World Cup or before if they don't qualify, right? That's, that's yeah. where we're at. You'd imagine that Fernando Sanchez goes, this is my last go-round, the, the, you know, the merry-go-round, and after this, I step down. But they could be making that change if they don't get there. And right now, that feels like a distinct possibility. But um, should, which is should, not should, they, should they make that change? If yes, they, qual- they should, if they, but they if won't. They, if they qualify for the World Cup. They should make that change now before the playoffs, but they won't. So, you know, that's where we're at, I think. So, but that, so that would give a new manager very little time. But if you change it after the playoffs... Would you do that? I, I think I would change it full stop. I think they're just they're just incredibly unconvincing. But you know, if they then go and win all their playoff games four nil, can you change it? Probably not. So mm. that, that's where you're stuck at. Um, the team that I have ahead of them are Chile. 
Chile are in real trouble, real trouble. Now, if you look at the Commonwealth qualification table, you might think I'm mad because they're currently sat in the last automatic qualification spot above both Colombia and Uruguay. But a quick dive into their fixtures shows that their last five match days are really, really not kind to them. At the time recording, they play Ecuador tonight, who are currently four points above them in third. And I genuinely think that anything less than a win in Santiago, and they can pretty much kiss their qualification hopes goodbye. Even a win, I think, is likely to be the start of a long struggle not the end of it because after tonight they host Argentina then they travel to Bolivia in La Paz which is famously a tricky place to go and then to Brazil and then they finish things off with what could be a straight shootout against Uruguay when you look at their rivals for these automatic spots Colombia Uruguay they've both already played the big two twice and have much more straightforward run-ins on paper whilst Ecuador's is sort of similar to Chile's and they have that gap as even a win tonight as above Chile would mean they're probably looking at a dogfight with Ecuador for that inter-confederation playoff spot, which is no means a certainty of qualification. We just talked about Japan possibly being your opponents for it. Chile weren't at the last World Cup, obviously. So perhaps you might think it's a bit mad to put them in here. But as the current 21st best ranked nation in the world, I think Chile missing out would be a real shock. And right now it looks like a real, real possibility. Isn't the Commonwealth World Cup qualification process, isn't it just the best? Oh yeah, it's, it's, the, just it's the greatest thing on so earth. Yeah. I wish that I could stay up late enough to watch it. I really do. I wish it was all a bit earlier. You've or got I old, lived, my friend. Or I lived in South America. You know, one of those two things. But it's such carnage. It really is. It's great. It's always, always seven teams that are able to pro- look, look like they're able to qualify for four automatic spots and a playoff spot. It's always sort of seven into four, seven into five. They're the teams that you grow up watching in the World Cup. They're the teams that you almost fantasize I guess a little bit as a kid when you play when you play the games and you, you take a look at Argentina and Brazil and Uruguay you look at the exotic names and you hear of Marcelo Salas of Chile and it's just like it feels like such a shame for any of them to miss out so when you actually comes down to those crunch few fixtures that will really sort it out you always end up like sort of rooting for all of them in a way do you kind of get that too I don't want any of them to miss out can we have all of them no can Venezuela yeah, have- come yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of quietly rooting for Ecuador here, right? Because they are the, they're the kind of wild card in the situation. You, and especially considering they are what the seventh or eighth, eighth ranked team of the ten. You know, for them to be currently in third spot is massive, absolutely huge for them. And it's a really cool little Ecuador generation. And I'm sure mm. that we'll talk about them at length if they do manage to qualify. But on the whole, I'm just like really hot on it and I think this would be a really fun thing to to change and obviously to get a new well not a new country Ecuador into the World Cup but you know not I get a country in here that who haven't been there for a little while it feels like something you know quite special and yet I'd still be upset if Chile don't make it mostly because I wouldn't get to see Ben Brereton Diaz at the yeah. World Cup and that's um, what everybody really wants absolutely I like the narrative arc for Ecuador because they won one of the recent youth tournaments and they're starting to blood those players in so I like to see that progression I like to see those players filter into the senior team and go for it and the fact that they're in a really strong position is really pleasing obviously I love Yanhel Herrera and I see his Venezuela rooted to the bottom of the table and it, it is a little bit heartbreaking I'm ready to call time on Venezuela's World Cup hopes uh, with seven points from yeah, I think they're out of it. But everyone else isn't. That's the mad thing in this common ball qualification. Venezuela are probably the only side of the nine out. Everyone else yeah. is still kind of kicking around within yeah. four points of each other. And that makes that makes life very exciting. It does. Absolutely. Right. That's all my that's all my rankings. I've I feel like I've done a lot. I feel like I've done a lot of a lot of talking here. So I yeah. think my voice is gonna go. I'm a bit worried. Um but alas, here we are. 
Yeah, thank you for that, Jack. Great ranking. Absolutely. Right, after the break, we'll be doing a Mel of the Week and the gibberish rankings. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Ranks FC, where it's time for my favourite part of any given week. And Dean Jones, the floor is yours. It's time for Melon of the Week. This week's Melon of the Week is Jack Duncan of the Newcastle Jets. (laughs) Now, I don't watch a lot of uh, A-League Australian soccer. Do they call it soccer or football? Yeah, yeah, because they have they have you know, Aussie rules, yeah. don't they? Which is exactly, football. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so uh, this was if you listen to the Patreon, I apologise because this was already um, discussed on there on Monday's show, but uh, it was put forward to me um, by one of our listeners, Jasper, and he he said to us, lads, we have a section A League moment of the week. He said this is for A League moment of the week, but it's also for Melon of the week because Jack Duncan of Newcastle Jets cost his team in the cup when he was at fault for both goals. When I say he was at fault, it was an absolute shambles of a performance. Like, you wouldn't see this at an under-10s game in the park. Like, he was so embarrassing, particularly um, with the second one, as, as Jasper says, a great comical value as he comes running out of his box to clear an overhit ball in behind, but proceeds to air swing at the ball, miss it by a good metre, and the striker then proceeds to dribble it into the net. It was a very <laughs> melanish behaviour. He's not really exaggerating. It was absolutely shocking. Like, go and have a look. Like, look yeah. Check out the, new, the, the, the highlights because Jack Duncan, it was the most melanish goalkeeping performance don't like to highlight goalkeepers, obviously, unless they've had an absolute howler. But trust me, the three of us would have done better in goal that day than him. Yeah, I mean, it's Western United versus Newcastle Jets in the FFA Cup. Very much worth your time. It's about a three-minute highlight package. And and to be honest, the two goals aren't all that, that Jack Duncan no, does. No, no. It's just a, it's, it's a generally really bad performance. It's Look, a shambles some, of a game. It's a some, shambles of a game. We all right. have bad days at the office, right? This is His one just happened to be in the Cup and it just wasn't particularly pretty. I'm it's just, not It's not the end of the world. It's just... Not great. I've just I've just Googled a Jack Duncan mistake to try and get a look at this, and it's come up with a different Jack Duncan mistake from 2017, in which a, a shot is trickling wide, and he dives over outside of his goalpost and saves it and parries it back into the striker's feet, even though it is just trickling out of play, and the striker taps it home. So I'm starting to wonder, really, based on the very small amount of evidence we've got, whether Jack Duncan is actually worse than us in goal. <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe Jack Duncan's been trying to get on Melon of the Week for that mm, long. That's, that's basically what yeah. he's now achieved what he's after. Exactly. He knew what was coming, though. Yeah. He absolutely knew what was coming. I did think you might be giving this to Memo Okoa. Deep, oh yeah! Uh, given his comments and the well, the subsequent reaction from Christian Pulisic and what happened in that game yeah, after he, he said trolled. that the <laughs> he trolls USMNT, doesn't he? Yeah, he says that the Mexico is the mirror in which the US view themselves. Um, yeah. Only for Pulisic to score and reveal a man in the mirror T-shirt underneath. Yeah, and uh, very enjoyable. Two 0 again. Um, Dos yeah, Congrats to US because I think they're enjoying their little moment uh, here. Uh, Mexico just cannot get the better of them and and the, the US lads and ladies are lapping it up. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Oh, God, just lost my voice. Oh. Um, that was a, it was a short and sweet 
uh, gibberish alarm. Um, Sam, over to you. It was certainly short. Uh, I don't know about the sweetness on that. That was awful to listen to. But I just uh, literally, my voice just completely cracked. That is. Oh, it's those rankings, mate. You're not used to doing them. Yeah, it's a lot of talking today, right? I'm not. I'm not <laughs> the hard work. You like talking, but not the hard work. There's you. <laughs> right. So we are have, having just got back from Paris. It feels only right to talk about that for a bit, and I'm going to present my three weirdest things about Paris, featuring. Absolutely no comments regarding how dark it is in the morning. Hey. Uh, but there is a little honourable mention before we get going to the sheer amount of brown glass I saw everywhere. I think for a city held in such high esteem for its beauty, I felt that that was a very strange colour choice for glass. It's absolutely everywhere and I don't get it at all. But we start at number three. There are steps basically everywhere. And it's really, really annoying. And I'm not talking about like actual full staircases. I, I mean like there are sets of sort of two or three or four steps kind of everywhere. So you move away from the main streets and stuff like that. And you end up, you know, going down two steps, then up three, then down five, then up two more. The Metro system in particular is ridiculous. It kind of feels like it was maybe built by Paula Radcliffe, uh, long, long, long walks between lines, which she'd have absolutely loved. She'd have jogged them. And then it's filled with kind of like, you know, four steps down, six steps up, eight down, two more up, three more up, six down, take an escalator. It's so uneven. And even my hotel room had a couple of steps in it. That's It was this long, sort of oblong-shaped room. The bed is at one end. The toilet is at the direct other end. And there are two downward steps right before the toilet. So when you get up Mate, in the night and it's level dark, flat. I don't know what you're expecting. <laughs> it's un- You get up in the night and you need to go to the toilet and you're like, well, I need to be very careful here because I can't see. Uh, it's like four or five in the morning, whatever it is. And if I if one misstep and I've broken my ankle, it's absolutely perilous. I just thought the whole, the whole place is built on an uneven foundation. I found it really weird. You think it needs a refit? <laughs> hey, just need to, uh, knock it down level it out and start again uh, <laughs> yeah i mean that's a good point and i guess at least you haven't got any kids because imagine pushing a buggy around mm, absolutely i mean even just the people with buggies in the metro stations were just they were, i mean it's, it's tough in london sometimes you they do get the orders <laughs> absolutely <laughs> ridiculous um this is why i was really fit yeah. This is how Angolo Kante developed his fitness levels. Like this is why <laughs> he, he just walked around the Paris subway system for you know, six months. That was yeah. that sorted. I mean, I mean, speaking of the metro, that is the theme for number two here, which is the metro system is genuinely stuck in the dark ages. And yes, obviously it's uneven and badly built, and it smells terrible. Oh my god, there are entire chambers. And so I, I say the word chambers because they're actually more like hallways, but they feel like fart chambers, honestly. Some of them, they just stink. They're awful. And I know that the London Underground doesn't smell that great. And I'm not saying it's quite as bad as the stink you get from New York City, but it's somewhere in the middle and it's not pleasant. But the real reason it's stuck in the dark ages, not its general scent, is they're still on one-use paper tickets, guys. Still. Ah. There's no contactless We've just had cop. We're supposed to be saving the environment. So stupid. Those tiny little things that you get. Tiny little ones. You go to the machine and ten. Yeah, or twenty, or one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you go and you buy a book of ten, which is ten little pieces of paper, and they're one-use tickets. They're worth about two euros or one euro seventy or whatever it is. I don't know. Per per ticket, all across the floor, all across Paris. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And it's just like the worst thing is, is that you, you. You, we took the Eurostar in, so you get into the, the main station, the Gare du Nord, just like everybody else. There's like thousands of people 
on this train. Everybody gets out of the Gare du Nord and everybody walks straight up to the three ticket machines and queues for like half an hour to get 10 little bits of paper. There is one customer service window where you can get an Oyster card equivalent, like a top-up card, but there's one window with one person behind it. So that's going to take forever. So everybody gets off the train, everybody queues up, everybody gets 10 little pieces of paper and then figures out how to get it through. It's like, guys, it's just, it's not that hard. When I went in 2014, it was the same. When I went two years ago with Dean for the Ballon d'Or, it was the same. how are we still on these tiny little Why paper tickets? In and out, yeah. It's madness because yeah. the rest of Paris is actually okay. You know, contactless is is in encouraged it, yeah. in, in in restaurants and cafes and dining. In most scenarios, contactless is okay. It's kind of specifically the metro system, which is just way off it. That's mad. Okay. That's annoying. Yeah. Hated it. No, it's really about it's me. about the environment for me. It's not about all this. It's not about all these queues. I don't mind that. Just just stop using paper tickets. Bad for vibes. Yeah, really bad. Bad really for bad. vibes. Right, what's number uh, one, Sam? Anyway, the weirdest thing is that um, every single cafe looks exactly the same, and it's very disorientating. Um, I started the trip by pointing out three different cafes to Rach and said, I've been there. No, I haven't. I hadn't been there. I'd been to a cafe that looked just like it, possibly six or seven miles away from where I was right now. But how would I know? Because they're all the damn same. So I'm starting to wonder if there's like a government decree on what a cafe must look like. Every single one is pretty small. They've got very small wicker tables of couple of different brown colors the chairs all look the same they've all got the outdoor heaters they've all got the red awning with the gold detail over the top where the heaters sit in they're all called cafe something or something cafe to all be the fair waiters, that is quite reasonable that's fine all the waiters <laughs> are dressed the same and you know it's it's good it's to be fair they're all they're all really nice but they all, all speak french they're all the same literally every single one is the same you turn any corner and it's the same and i started off as uh, i think i've eaten there no, I hadn't. And then by the end, I was making that terrible joke over and over again. Rachel's wanted to kill herself every time. It's like, oh, I think I've eaten there. She's like, it's not funny the eighth time. It's not funny the 16th time. It's not funny the 25th time. It's not funny now. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I'll stop making that joke. Next corner. I think I've eaten there. Can't help myself. But it's really weird that they all look the exact same. I don't understand why there isn't a bit more individuality to it. <laughs> I mean, yes, indeed, very good, very good. That was um, <laughs> the bit. The bit that I enjoyed the most. Like, they're all called like cafe something or something cafe. But like, well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't want to be that guy, but also that yeah. seems pretty fair. Um, yeah. if, if you were asking that me, is the well least done, my, that is the least of my concerns when it comes to the cafes. To be fair, maybe you should learn the names, and then you'd be able to pick out the differences between. Mate, them. I bet there's more than more than ten are all called the same name as well. It's a nightmare. Cafe it's a de Paris. <laughs> cafe <laughs> exactly. de Paris. Absolutely right. Well done, Sam. That was uh, that was enjoyable. It sounds like you had a great time in Paris. To be perfectly honest with you, complaining about steps, hating the underground, and thinking that every cafe was the same. No wonder Rachel <laughs> wanted to get home. Um, <laughs> with that, I think we'll call this one a day, boys. That was enough for me to do. So thank you very much to Dean Jones. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much to Sam Tai. Thank you, buddy. I've been Jack Collins. This has been Ranks FC. We hope you've enjoyed this international-themed episode. We'll be back next week with a return to Club Matters, and we will see you then. Take it easy. Peace.